Welcome to Here for Her Health, where we are building a better, healthier everyday for women. Brought to you by Organon. Welcome back to Organon's Here for Her Health, where we're building a better and healthier everyday for every woman. I'm your host, Wendy Lund, and joining me today on the show is Dr. Primavera Spinolo. Originally from Italy, Dr. Spinola worked for years with patients with alcohol and drug use disorders. She's launched an OBGYN service and conducted several research projects where she championed the cause of women's reproductive health. In 2012, she moved to the United States to complete her postdoctoral fellowship at NIH, where she continued working for several years. Today, Dr. Spinolo is the scientific director at the Connor Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And she's here today to discuss how to make sex and gender-informed approaches the standard for medical research. So welcome to the show, Vera. We just wanted to start by just hearing a little bit more about what you do and what your role is at the Connor Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology. Sure. So right now I'm the scientific director of the First in Women Precision Medicine platform at the Connor Center for Women Health and Gender Biology, as you said. That is a research center here at the Bigram and Women Hospital. And specifically, what I do as the scientific director of this platform is to ensure that as novel therapeutics are developed, they're developed keeping in mind that, you know, men and women may have different needs, but from a biological perspective, but also from a gender perspective, meaning that, you know, use access and I would say also dissemination of therapeutics is also, you know, like influenced by gender related factors. Also, I, within the Connor Center, I work as a researcher. So I basically conduct my studies. My studies are mainly focused on uncovering female-specific and sex-differentiating mechanisms undergoing what we today define as stress-related psychiatric disorder, basically would be anxiety, depression, and PTSD that are all female-prevalent disorders. Great. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. We have a lot of questions to ask, and we're looking forward to learning from you and hearing from you and and handing you the mic to talk into. So I want to start here. We know that there's been a record number of approvals by the FDA in 2018 with big advancements in oncology, neurodegenerative diseases, and other disease states. And obviously, in 2020, we had this massive global effort to develop effective COVID-19 vaccines. So it seems like there's really nothing that drug development innovators can't do when they set their mind to it. So yet we're still playing catch up in the area of women's health care. What's your view on the front lines at the Connor Center for Women's Health? Why is that? Well, this is a very good question, but also, you know, a very complex question. First, let me start saying that it's very true. We have made a lot of progresses in including more women in research and in clinical trials. However, when you break down for disease area, you see that there are still some disease areas, some therapeutic areas where women are not adequately represented. Now, going back to your question, why we're still, I would say, at the stage of advocating for including women in clinical trial? Well, first of all, the first issue is a mindset issue. 
we have been, and when I say we, I mean, you know, we scientists, we physicians, and we, you know, as men and women, have all been raised with this idea that when it comes to testing a medication or, you know, an intervention, basically, women and men are identical except for reproductive organs, if I can put this way. So if, for example, you're testing a medication for an heart condition, then testing it in men and women, it's a common belief should be basically bring exactly the same result. At the same time, we have done a lot of progresses in showing that it's not true, that besides what are female-specific disorders, men and women are different in many other ways when it comes to many other disorders. But I think there is still a lot to do in terms of like raising awareness about this. And then the second very important barrier is the how-to. I personally find, while talking with other colleagues, that there is a pretty good level of awareness. Nowadays, almost anybody will tell you, no, I don't think, you know, we should include more women in clinical trial. And of course, you know, when we hear that, I would say we're all happy, right? We come to the conclusion that, oh, yes, finally the message went through. Everybody got it. But then when you start looking at how many trials are currently enrolling an adequate number of women, as I mentioned before, you still find that in certain therapeutic areas, the number of women is very low. And even, and that to me is a very critical point, even when women are enrolled in clinical trial, do we study, you know, women as different for men? You know, are we checking the box? Are we saying, oh yes, you know, look at my study. You know, I've included 50% of men and 50% of women. But then inclusion is critical, but it's step one. You have to design your study for to look for those differences. You have to analyze the data and present the data to actually show whether there are those differences. So it's a major undertaking and it really means we need to revolution you know, the way we do research right now. That is such a great way of looking at it. And it actually feeds right into my next question, which is something you've talked about, this whole issue of whether there is a conflict or a crisis, and in this case, a pandemic, women and underserved populations are told they need to wait for that emergency to kind of subside or conclude before we can focus on women's concerns. We would love to hear more about you know, can you talk about more about your observations and about how we remind the establishment that women aren't a niche patient community in this case? Yeah, what you said is very true. It's a concept that in literature is described as the tyranny of the urgent. When something is very is perceived as very urgent as a priority, everything else should sort of be put on a hold and wait for better times to come. But what is that we put on a hold? We put on a hold what we perceived is not necessary, necessary for our survival, necessary to stay better, to be better. And so that to me, it's really the core issue here. If we believe that the well-being of more than half of the worldwide population is not a priority, then I think we really have a great issue here. And I want to say, and I want to be a little provocative here, to me, it's very important to understand directly from women how much they perceive 
that this is important, not just to them, but to their family, to their community, and to the society at all. Like how much you as a woman feeling well, receiving adequate care, you know, receiving medication that are not just safe, but also effective based on your specific biological needs, how much you think that is important for you as an individual, but also, you know, like for the community and society that you're part of. Because I think that women have a great understanding of their needs, a great ability of understanding their needs. I just don't know how much we have been used to put our needs at the second, third, you know, or fifth level. So I don't know how much we are somehow talking about myself first, of course, you know, implicitly like playing a part on this tyranny of the urgency. I just love the way you just captured that tyranny of the urgency. You know, here we are sitting in the middle of Breast Cancer Awareness Month and talk about tyranny of the urgency where women may not be going in to get their mammograms, may not be doing self-checks. These things are part of the back burner. And I think to your point, this tyranny of the urgency basically prioritizes the other things over this. And yet the impact of doing that could be pretty catastrophic. So you know, and you also made another good point, which is we don't prioritize ourselves. We don't, we know what our needs are, yet we don't talk about what those needs are. So hoping through this podcast and different things we're doing at Organon, where we're really trying to listen to her, we can achieve a lot more. We've definitely struck a chord in terms of hearing from women through our various channels and, you know, working with people like you, we're hoping we can get the word out much, much more broadly and much more intensively. So another gap out there is the whole idea of the data gap, right? This gender data gap that exists where when we look across many areas of research, we see an immense amount of data, almost an unfathomable amount of data, but we really don't see enough data when it comes to women and the health issues we face. And we're 50% of the population. So, you know, the question I have for you is how do we accelerate better research for and about women? <laughs> That's another part. I think, you know, like a couple of days, you know, like <laughs> to answer, but, you know, let's try to get to the point. You made a good point by saying there are already a lot of data out there. So I would say to me, the first great opportunity we have right now is to go back, take this data and analyze this data to specifically look at sex and gender differences. Now, it wouldn't always be possible because we pay the price of not having collected data in a way that allows those kind of analysis, but it's not impossible. I think, you know, that this is one of those examples where, of course, we want to aim at the best, but we need to start working with what we have. So my grandmother would always say, you cook with what you have in the kitchen. And I'm not trying here to say, as always, you know, we have to set on whatever is the low-hanging fruit when it comes to women. I'm not absolutely suggesting that, but I'm saying, you know, if we try to get the best data set possible, you know, the data set, and here I want to throw some example, hoping that whoever is listening to us tomorrow is going to design a study that is going to include those data to be collected. So a study where we collect not just the age and the sex of the subject, but we collect also the gender that, as we know, are two different things. You know, we collect the age at first period, when it was the last period, the number of pregnancies, whether the patient is perimenopausal, postmenopausal, had an hysterectomy, had an ovariectomy. There are actual information that patients are 
very much willing to give us and to disclose. So if we, however, expect today to get into one of those large publicly available data set and find all this information, I can tell you we're not going to find it. But that doesn't mean that we cannot do other amazing things. For example, right now, there are large data set with imaging data. So we can look at the brain of men and women. We can look at how different parts of the brain connect. We can look at gender-related factors, for example, exposure to smoking that we know, for example, is different in men and women, exposure to alcohol, and see how this differentially affects the brain. There is so much we can do with what we already have. And so that brings me back to the source of everything that is the willingness. How many scientists out there are willing to do this kind of work? I think there are many. I think, however, they're missing either funding opportunities to do so, or in some cases, you know, they have not been trained to think about it. They may be willing to do it, but they don't know how to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, Definitely great points. Love the idea of use the ingredients in the kitchen and see what we can figure out. I love your grandmother's advice. I'm going to think about that more often when I'm in my kitchen (laughs) or in the workplace for that matter. But you're right. I mean, there's definitely probably so much we can learn from, from what we have and then find those willing researchers who are willing to dig in and, and drive the criteria further and really dig into women and their gender specific lives to really kind of unravel that health uh, information so we could have better insights, right? To, to drive a better focus and strategy around our health. So you have clearly been a tireless champion for women and their health. And, you know, everyone applauds you for that. We are, we're thrilled to have you here today, but let's talk about women's health. I mean, we're, we're in many ways shaped by our early experiences, life that drive to different experiences throughout our career. And, you know, I think what would be really interesting is to figure out what was the women's health outlook when you were in medical school? What did you need to do? Who was your mentor? And how did you need to work to affect change in tackling women-specific challenges and health issues? We'd just love to hear a little bit more about where you came from. What was your journey like? Sure. I'm very happy to share it. So I came from Italy. So I went to medical school right after high school. You know, we don't have college. So I was 19 years old when I first sat in a, my first class was anatomy. And <laughs> and I have to say that in six years, six years is how long medical school lasts in Italy. I never came across one single class or one single mentor teacher that actually discussed, you know, in the class setting sex differences or the influence of gender. I had amazing professors and amazing mentors, but I just have to say that was not a topic that was in any way included in the medical education provided to physician, physician to be. And I'm not talking about 200 years ago. I graduated from medical school in 2005, so it's relatively not a long time ago. So what happened was that at some point while I was doing my residency program, I started working in a very large drug addiction clinic. We had like a volume of about 300 patients every day and we had different infrastructure, including like a sort of like rehab community where patients could stay overnight. But we also had a drop-in center, one of those places where patients can come and, and come for any reason, even just to take a shower, you know, and get a break from being on the street. And I remember clearly one afternoon when we had four new admission and there were women and we didn't have 
a room for them because we were used to have basically an exclusively male population. So we had to rearrange the rooms and we had to rethink about how to use the bathroom, literally, because there was one bathroom. Right. That makes sense. And I'm sharing this to say the delivery care system is not conceived to meet the need of women. And from that first very eye-opening moment, which you sit in your medical office and you ask yourself, how is this? Like, we cannot meet patients because we, we didn't never thought women would come here. Then I went all the way to actually having more and more patients that were women. And then the problems became other problems. These women will get pregnant, you know, wanted to get pregnant or they had HIV. And more and more, I discovered that we didn't have resources. There was not enough knowledge out there to really help them. And that when I was trying to talk with other colleagues, I would find over and over the same sort of like despair that is like we basically play by the here. We have these, and so we put together this team. There was me, there was a gynecologist, there was an infective disease specialist, there was a psychotherapist, and we created this path for women with substance use disorder that were pregnant to try to really take care of them in this very specific moment, complicated moment of their life. And that is how my interest in women health started. And then I have to say that was like about 13 years ago. And from there, I was very lucky in finding other mentors that were experts in women's health, as well as I have to say, some of my mentors had no expertise in this field. They were like neuroscientists and so on, but they really gave me the possibility to have time to study while I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship and so on. And so to build basically from scratch an expertise in this field. And this brought me all the way to the Garner Center for Women, Health and Gender Biology. And here the executive director is Edine Joffe, and she's a you know never-ending source of inspiration and knowledge for me. So this is one of those fields where you never stop to learn. And it's great when you can find people that are so generous and and want to share the knowledge. It's very interesting. I think one of the points you bring up is that whole idea around an early epiphany. You had an early epiphany in your career that the world is not really set up for caring for women in these different treatment settings. And you made it your business to go out and become a scientist. And obviously you have an MD and a PhD, very proficient And it brought me back to a time when I went to college in London, my senior year. And I remember I went with my friend to the Marie Stokes clinic and she was prescribed emergency contraception. And I said, what is this pill? (laughs) What is this? And I couldn't believe we didn't have this available in the US. And so it made it my mission for the next like seven years to see how emergency contraception might be made available. And I was actually very proud to be part of the team at Planned Parenthood that helped communicate about the emergency contraception pill. And so it just brings you back to those early things in your life that shape your way you perform from a career perspective, the way you drive your career, your your kind of your behavior in terms of what you want to achieve. So thank you. You're having some very eye-opening moments for me. A lot of kind of thinking back. Let's keep going because I have a couple more questions. And I think one of them you've kind of touched on a little bit. Maybe we can dig in a little deeper, but we, we all know that gender inequity issues persist. So how do we address these 
biases that exist in clinical and scientific research. What makes for a good scientist? I mean, I think that would be a really interesting point of view to hear from you. You're around a lot of different scientists. And you know, who's aware of the gender gap and how do they approach research to negate this bias and account for more gender diversity? So any examples you have or thinking on that would be very appreciated. Well, as I mentioned before, I'm very happy because I'm surrounded by people that actually are doing research in sex and gender differences. We at the Connor Center have this program that is called the Ignite Program that is basically a program providing funds and also, I would say, guidance to scientists that wants to do that. Those are like, of course, pilot awards, but every year we get such a great number of applications. And that, to me, it's really a remarkable way to say there are a lot of scientists out there that really want to do this, that they're just waiting for an opportunity to work in this direction. And, you know, I was very pleased, for example, to see that from one of those pilot fundings that we gave. So those awards, you know, really allowed two scientists to then get to R01, that are those big NIH grants that really, you know, like make a difference, not just for the scientists receiving it, but for the kind of research that you can do. So going back to your question, out there, there are a lot of scientists in many different disciplines that are already doing great science, that are already uncovering the role of sex and gender in influencing health and disease outcomes. However, I have to say there is also still a large number of scientists out there that are not particularly aware of, I wouldn't say they're not aware of the importance, but they're still Pass me this expression, thinks it does not apply to them, to the kind of science they do or to the kind of therapeutic area they focus on. I will say this is one of those very universal topics. If you're studying whatever you're studying, you know, you will always control in your study for age. You will always control in your study for sex. That means that we know that age and sex play a very critical role. But again, because I like always to be very practical, you know, you ask me what a good scientist is. And I want to give you two examples that are not people, but are like, you know, example of what everybody that is listening to this podcast can do starting from today. So if among those listening to us, there is somebody that is writing a paper, you know, summarizing, you know, his or her findings, then I would give the suggestion that as a good scientist in the analysis and in the discussion, as well as in the results, please point out to the fact whether your, your study was not enrolling women or whether women represent a very small part of your sample as a limitation of the study. That is good science. Sci- good science is honest science. It's science that presents things in a very honest, in a very straightforward way. I'm not saying that, of course, you know, and I don't want to create any confusion here. I'm not saying that not stating this out means you're covering something about your study. I'm just trying to say we haven't been used to discuss this as a limitation of our science. We can submit a manuscript, you know, have brilliant results, have reviewers asking us to do 300 more experiments to make sure that what we are observing is right. And they will review our statistical analysis, everything. But in how many instances, I would like to know, we get pushed back because we haven't enrolled enough women. In how many instances we get pushed back because we didn't present sex and age disaggregated analysis or the data presented as disaggregated, you know, by sex or by age. So to me, 
instead of waiting for somebody telling us to do so, the editor of a journal or whatever else, we can start doing it. I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of young scientists out there that will have no issue in doing it, but whoever is starting now, you know, a scientific career can be maybe more receptive, more prone to insert those changes. And I know that I'm getting a little bit long here, but just allow me to say it would be important, I think, for all of us to remind ourselves why we got into science or into being a physician. Because you want to help, you want to discover, because you're curious, because you care about people. And those people have different needs. So I would say a good scientist is somebody that wants to know. And if you study something only in one part of the population, then you don't get the whole answer. So if you don't want to do for many other reasons, just do it to please your own curiosity. And I'm pretty sure that by studying women and men, we will uncover so many more potential therapeutic targets, mechanisms, you know, biomarkers of diseases that we don't even know they may exist right now. Yeah. I think this kind of speaks to a bigger issue because if we're going to improve the health of women globally, it's going to take an effort that's bigger than one company, one industry, even a country. It's going to really take an entire ecosystem-wide scaled-up global effort. It has to be very much ingrained in kind of everything we think about and do. So I guess the, the big question I'm going to kind of leave you with to answer is, who do we collaborate with? Where do we start? How do we get this going? How do we account for different perspectives here and still achieve workable action-oriented strategies that will bear some fruit? This is an excellent question. So where do we start? I would say we start from the ground up. We start with involving women at any level of the society in this process. As I mentioned at the very beginning of our chat, we need to make sure that women not just understand their needs, but they actually are put in the right position to advocate for their needs. And that goes through knowledge, awareness, and the possibility to take actions. That is where I will start first, making this not as a niche question or issue for the scientific community, for the medical community, so that we gather all together once or twice a year. We discuss, you know, with, with each other how much this is important. We preach to our core. We get people that we know very well saying, yes, of course, this is very important. And then we leave behind who are really the most important driver of all this, our fellow let me call it colleagues, in the sense, you know, that we are all working on this. So I will really, as I said, start with this ground up approach, hearing from women what they want and what they know about what means, you know, having more women in clinical research. We don't know why, what is the perspective of women. We don't know, for example, why from a perspective of a woman, what participation in a clinical trial looks like. For example, whether one of the reasons why women tend to be recruited less in clinical trials is because they perceive a higher risk because the role in the family is something that prevents them. You know, we don't know all those things. We sit, we guess, we look at the data, we look at trends, we try to see patterns. Well, it would be so much easier to just ask, you know, and then 
you know, the other point where I would work on simultaneously, I would say, is really creating a community. We have the opportunity here to set a model, a model where government, academia, biopharma, we all come together with a common purpose. This is something that it doesn't matter which area of research you're in, you constantly hear. They're getting together, they're taking the village, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say here there is really an opportunity because in all those different entities, there is so much. This podcast is an example of it, right? The willingness to really embrace each other, embrace each other's perspective, view, priorities, and try to make a sort of list of things that we all see from a different perspective as the critical starting points. So instead of saying, you know, that it's going to take a village, I would say, let's build this village. Nice. The, the, really like that. <laughs> yeah, the people that want to live in this village are already there. They just need, quote unquote, space where to convene, you know, and where to move this forward. You've left us with so many excellent ideas for where to go from here. And I just want to kind of end our conversation, which I've so enjoyed to just say, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I just want to hand this by saying that I really hope for my son. I have a son, he's three years old. I really hope for my son that 20 or 30 years from now, when he's going to listen to this podcast, he will say, oh, mom, you were talking about this. It looked like ancient history, meaning, you know, that 30 years from now, all these issues that are so cogent, that are so important, will be ancient history because, you know, we have made so much progresses that we don't need to discuss about them anymore. Maybe we, me, you, we would be fighting for something else because fighters are always fighters. But I really hope we will be able to put this under the ancient history. <laughs> I love that. And you know what? Maybe we'll just be practicing our own self-care at that point and let your, your children and my children keep fighting all the great fights. Although I have a feeling you and I will keep fighting some exactly. kind of fight until the bitter <laughs> end. So. I just want to thank you so much. It was wonderful to meet you today. You gave me so much food for thought that I can't wait to share and just hope we can stay connected over, over the next few months and years. For sure. We are on the same team. <laughs> we are on the same team for sure. And love that you are an Italian and Italy is one of my favorite countries. Okay, you. So, you know, thank you for some of the tiebacks to Italy. That was wonderful. Okay. So do cheering to this one in Italy. <laughs> Yes, totally. I want to say thanks again to Dr. Spinolo for joining us on the show today and raising awareness of bias in women's health and women's health research and helping to show that women are 50% of the population, not a niche. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you can find your favorite podcasts so that you never miss an episode. I'm Wendy Lund, and thank you all for listening to Here for Her Health.